frequency matters. You know, if you're doing something every day, it's going to be really hard to have a super involved psych up routine or to rely on that pep talk. You know, if you have a motivational song, if you listen to it every day, it's probably going to dissipate its power over. So I think frequency is the other issue along with motivation that determines some of these things. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, what do LeBron James, Jerry Seinfeld, and Daniel McGinn all share in common? Now, I know what you're thinking. The first thing is you're wondering, who is Daniel McGinn? And I will get to that in a second. But first, we're going to talk about what they all have in common. While they all have a pregame, a pre-performance, or a pre-writing ritual. And this ritual is intriguing because it's both a mental preparation technique which can be simultaneously meaningless and effective at building confidence or simply just making somebody feel more comfortable before they execute whatever activity it is they're about to embark on. Now, LeBron James will walk to the center of the court and chalk his hands, and then he takes a handful of that chalk and makes it rain over his head. Jerry Seinfeld listens to Sinatra and puts on a suit jacket five minutes before the show and then paces in a certain pattern. And Daniel puts on a pair of sound-blocking headphones before he starts hitting the keys to get his mindset right so that he can put on the page what he wants to share with you. Now, Daniel McGinn is a senior editor at the Harvard Business Review and the author of Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. He was also recently named one of the top 100 leadership speakers for 2018 by Inc. Magazine. And today we are going to talk specifically about the science of mental preparation and what it can do for you and I. Now, mental preparation encompasses a lot more than the standard pep talk, and we're going to learn all about that. But it's interesting to look at the pep talk as an example of these preparation techniques. In sports, in business, and even in the military, there are three elements that these pre-engagement speeches need to be effective. First, they need direction, the nuts and the bolts, the offensive scheme, the business plan, or the battle strategy. They need empathy. The leader needs to say things that make it clear he or she personally cares for the team and the result, and that they are actively trying to build that connection so that the team wants to please and satisfy the leader. The third element is meaning-making. Whatever the task is, make it seem more important, more meaningful, or related to a larger message. This is just three elements of a really incredibly awesome conversation that Daniel and I have, and I believe that you will take away a tremendous amount 
of value and lessons from this episode that you will be able to apply immediately in your own life. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Daniel McGinn, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Very excited to have you, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the copy of your book that you sent me, and we're going to talk a lot about Psyched. And first, I'm psyched for you for being named one of the top 100 leadership speakers for 2018. So congratulations. Oh, thanks. I'm grateful for your interest, and uh, I'm happy to be here. So uh, I'm really excited to speak with you. Did you see that Inc. Magazine article? Yeah, but by any chance? I did. It popped up in my Twitter <laughs> feed uh, just in the last 24 hours or so. So that yeah, that was definitely a pleasant surprise. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So I want, I always like to start at the beginning and learn a little bit about our guest's origin story. So let's let's go back to to when you decided to become a journalist. Like what attracted you most to the idea of becoming a journalist and having conversations with interesting people? Uh, that's a great question. So when I was coming up through high school, uh, I actually really, really disliked writing. I was not one of these people that from the time they were seven year old, six years old, they wanted to write books. That was definitely not, not me. And not until really I got late in high school and we, we started writing on computers instead of writing by hand or by typewriter, did I really start to like the process of putting words together. But even then, I didn't see it as a viable way to build a career. You know, I thought that if you wanted to be a writer, you were going to be like somebody's waiter and writing novels on the side. Um, so I went to college. I intended to be an investment banker. I was a finance major. Um, I ended up going on and getting an MBA. Uh, I was very, very interested in business. I liked writing, but I didn't necessarily see it as the way that it was going to build my career. But then when I got about halfway through my schooling, I looked around, I started reading the Wall Street Journal, I started reading Fortune and Business Week, and I recognized, hey, there seems to be a market for people that can talk business and understand these concepts, but can also tell a story and put words together. So that's sort of how it evolved. What keeps you engaged today? The quality of the people and the ideas that I get to deal with, um, both in my job at Harvard Business Review, where I'm in editor or when I'm outside writing a book project like, like this one, you know, it's it's really a privilege to get to to tell people stories and to meet the people who are coming up with these breakthrough ideas, whether they're researchers or whether they're, you know, people out in the real world who are using these ideas. Um, it's just no two days are alike and I get to talk to people like you as well. So um, <laughs> uh, it's it's just a, an all around win. Yeah, no, it was uh it was an awesome uh introduction to uh, to hear that Anthony had referred you to me, and and uh, I was super pumped to to chat with you about your book because I'm it's a topic that I'm very much interested in. I've had um, Stephen Kotler on the show in in the past, and he's you know he writes all about like flow and and getting into flow. And I've had Dr. Jim Aframo, who's the peak performance coach for the San Francisco Giants, on, and he's got a great book called Champions Mindset. And there's this whole um, section in the book that's that's about getting psyched up, but there's never been like a book like yours about it. That's all about this one category. But before we dive into uh, to the book and kind of the motivation behind it, you talked about that one of the things that keeps you engaged are the the interesting people that you meet and the stories that you're able to tell. So, who is the what has been the most interesting story or meaningful story that you've engaged in in your writing career so far? Wow, that's an that's a, a another great question. 
the question that I get that's sort of a variation of that, that you know, and a lot of people meet a reporter, they'll, one of the questions they'll typically ask is, who's the most famous person you've interviewed? Or, you know, who's the best celebrity you've met? And this does tie back into your question because, you know, very often celebrities and famous people are not the best people to interview. Either they're too guarded or they're too programmed. They've been meeting too much. They tell the same stories over and over. You know, if you've ever seen them on The Tonight Show, you know, it's very canned and their anecdotes are just a little bit too polished and smooth. I've had a lot of success with doing stories about people who are just off stage in those moments. Those are probably some of my my favorite people to write about. People who are close to celebrity, but not, not really the celebrity. So I, when I was at Newsweek, I was at Newsweek for a long time before I came to Harvard Business Review. I did a profile of what it was like to be the wife of a NASCAR driver. And this was back at a time when NASCAR drivers were being in, being killed in crashes very frequently, very risky profession. Um, I did another story for Newsweek about what it was like to be the executive assistant to Jack Welsh, who at the time was the most famous, and most powerful CEO in America. Um, so I had a lot of success with stories that are not of the person who's in the spotlight, but the person who's just sort of on the fringes outside the spotlight. They've usually never been interviewed before. They have a really interesting window into the powerful the celebrity, the, the stuff that everybody's looking at. They're just outside the frame. And those are some of my favorite people to write about. What has been, in, in terms of the lessons that you've learned about the people that are on the fringes of celebrity, what has been the most meaningful lesson or takeaway? from those stories, if, if there's a thread that ties them together? Um, I think that uh, oftentimes those people are really important to create the environment that allows the person who is in the spotlight to be successful. Um, you know, I would never call them little people, um, but they're, you know, if you think about, say, a sports team, um, you know, you think about, you know, everybody knows who the head coach of an NFL team is. You know, once you get down into the assistant coaching ranks, those names are a little bit less recognizable. The trainers, nobody really knows about at all. Um, those people are really important players in um, in creating an environment where the team can be successful. So I think uh, those people just outside the spotlight are uh, unheralded, but often really important to performing. Oh, totally. I, I can think about, I can only imagine the important role that that Jack Welch's um, executive assistant played in his ability to be the successful leader that he was at GE and and is as a uh, as an author and speaker today. I can only imagine. And not only that, not only setting the table so that he can perform his duties, but also dealing with his ego. I can only imagine. Yeah, there's really a balancing act there. I mean, the kind. Uh, the kinds of demands we put on our leaders today in terms of time and requests and the need for them to be efficient and for them to to basically help them decide how to spend every minute in the way that can add the most value for whatever the organization is. Um, a good assistant or a good chief of staff, a lot of CEOs have now moved to a chief of staff model, sort of like the White House uses. Um, those rules, are, those jobs are really critical in terms of setting the leader up to be successful. So when you think back to, you know, your beginning as a journalist and, you know, even when you're kind of coming to the, when the light is starting to to shine on the idea that you might want to do this or, or even during your career as a journalist, who has been the wisest person that you've met in either of those scenarios? 
when I was coming up through the ranks as a reporter in my 20s and 30s, I was really lucky to have a series of great, great editors who worked just one, one or two levels above me who really taught me what I was doing. So you know, it's tempting to sort of go right to the subjects that I've written about and think about them as sort of wise and brilliant. But I, my reflex is to actually go to the people who were teaching me through those years you know, a bunch of editors that most people have never heard of, but who, without whom I wouldn't know what I was doing. In my work at Harvard Business Review over the last seven years, I work closely with a number of authors, people who are writing for the magazine, who now I'm their editor. And a couple of those relationships are ones that I've really learned a whole lot from about, um, about reacting calmly and about humility and about working hard to clarify and make an idea as clear as you possibly can. So if you had to, if, if there was one person that came to mind that helps shape your ability to write and, and breathe life into uh, your talent, who would that be? Uh, my first editor when I was at Newsweek for a few years in my 20s was a guy named Hank Gilman. Hank is, is sort of legendary in business journalism circles. He, he started at the, Wall, at the Wall Street Journal and the Boston Globe. He spent uh, five or six years at Newsweek and he went on to spend... 15 years at Fortune, he ended up being the number two editor there. And there's actually an award in business journalism that's given out. It's called the Lawrence Menard Award. And it's given to an editor for mentorship, for basically helping to sort of shape a generation of young journalists underneath him. And Hank was the winner of that award one year. And it was really well-deserved because there's just dozens and dozens of people like me who, when we're asked, you know, who really you know, brought you up through this profession and who was really the linchpin, a lot of us point to Hank. I love it, man. It's always good to go back and uh, reflect and direct light or heat onto the sources of inspiration that have uh, inspired the greatness that we all possess. Um, and as we as we transition into the book, which I think is really just a, such a, gr- a great book, it's well-crafted, um, and, and I encourage people to go buy a copy. I'd love to learn about the aspects of the environment that you were in that made you comfortable taking on this kind of a challenge. Yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, a good question. It's sort of like the origin story of the book in a way. Um, I think there were three things that led me to want to write a book about this. Um, the first one goes way back to when I was in high school. So I'm not a very athletic person, unfortunately, but I did try hard. I was uh, on the football team and the basketball team in high school. I did not get a lot of quality playing time. I was not a starter on those teams. Um, But it was really a formative experience, not just in terms of making a lot of friendships and learning a lot of discipline and how to do hard stuff. But also, I became fascinated by the psychological and emotional tactics that the coaches would use to try to motivate us, especially in the half hour or so leading up to a game. You know, there were certain music we would listen to in the locker room and on the bus. There were a lot of rules. There were pep talks. There was you know, things to make us angry at the opponent, sort of the way they would manipulate our emotions. That was the first thing that got me interested in this way back when I was 17 years old. The second thing I saw when I got out of school and into my 20s, I would occasionally meet former athletes who were now professionals, like a lawyer or an accountant. And I would see them getting psyched up using some of the things we used we were in in sports to before they would go to court or before they would go to a board meeting to present to the board. Um, so that was the second thing. I was seeing real-world applications of this. And then the third thing which really cemented it was when I started working at Harvard Business Review, I, every so often I would see a research study that addressed some of these things. The idea that 
there's something you can do for just a couple minutes before you're put into some sort of a professional performance environment, like pitching to VCs or doing a job interview, and that something you do can make a difference in the way you perform. When I saw that there was actual science behind this and a series of research papers, that's when I knew I wanted to do a book. Mm, That's cool. Do you remember what your uh, game day song was? So in skipball, uh, I played on the the high school basketball team as a sophomore, a junior, and a senior. And so it would have been a we had a different warm-up song for every one of those years. I think my sophomore year it was a song called Relax, Don't Do It by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. <laughs> um, one year it was this song called The Final Countdown um, by this I think it was a British band and I think they were one hit wonders. So I'd have to Google to find the name of it. Every once in a while, I'll hear it. Um, But yeah, and even like marching band music. So like in football, we would have music on in the locker room. But then when we were actually out warming up on the field, the marching band would be warming up. And so, you know, to this day, there are certain marching band songs that I hear that sort of almost transport me back to that environment of getting ready for a high school football game. And, you know, you can sort of feel your pulse quicken a little bit. Yeah, totally. You know, it, it's interesting. I, one of the most fascinating things about your book that I that I read was the the fact that, and it it makes sense when you read it and you think about it. But I hadn't thought about it this way. But like, you know, people that volunteer for certain things, for certain big activities, such as Navy SEALs getting ready to go take down Osama bin Laden, they don't need necessarily to have a big talking to a big pep up moment. They they understand the the grandeur of what they're what they're trying to do and so it's necess- it it can be received differently by those those who are listening as opposed to a high school basketball team trying to take on uh you know to win the championship game and it was interesting and I'd love for you to elaborate on on the discoveries there yeah i think there's two different there's um at least two different dynamics at work there so number 1 the first thing is really intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Um, uh, if you think about uh, Navy SEALs, for instance, they're typically in their 30s. They've been in the service for a while. They, not only do they volunteer, but they had to work really hard in order to get into that branch of the service, um, the very elite branch with lots of weeding out that goes on. By the time they get there, they don't need a lot of emotional manipulation. They're just sort of quiet professionals. They know what they need to do. You know, if you go, this is one of the things that Stanley McChrystal talked about when I interviewed him. He said, if you went into the briefing before a SEAL mission, they just talk about the strategy and what the, what the actual objectives and how they're going to do them. There's not a lot of emotional ups or down. There's not a lot of rah-rah because these people don't need it. They're just quiet professionals. Um, if you think about 18-year-olds who've been drafted in a time of war, like back in Vietnam, um, who are scared, who don't have any experience, who maybe don't want to be there. Um, that's when a pep talk can become much more useful. Um, so that's what, so that gets the motivational question. The other question is the frequency question. You know, if you think about like a, a big pep talk like you've seen in the movies or like you sometimes see on ESPN, think about a sport like baseball where you're playing 160 games a year. Could you imagine listening to 160 pep talks, Um, you know, football, you know, football, not only because football is a more explosive, more kind of power sport, but also football, you play six NFL teams play 16 Sundays, not including the playoffs. So frequency matters. You know, if you're doing something every day, it's going to be really hard to have 
a super involved psych up routine or to rely on that pep talk. You know, if you have a motivational song, if you listen to it every day, it's probably going to dissipate its power over. So I think frequency is the other issue along with motivation that determines some of these things. So one of the things you mentioned on is like the people that like the, the Vietnam era type getting drafted into the, into the war. And there's a lot of people that in the business world get drafted into a position that they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily believe that they're well equipped for. Other people see them as being able to, to take on the challenge, but they themselves get stuck in the quote unquote imposter syndrome. Is that something that you've ever struggled with personally? And how has your research affected the way you deal with that? You know, I think everybody deals with imposter syndrome at times. Um, you know, there are probably times, especially when I was new to editing jobs where I um, was lacking in confidence or didn't have enough wins under my belt yet when maybe my confidence was not as high as it could have been. Um, in terms of that idea that you're, you're maybe put in a position you don't want to be in or you're, you know, you're in a job you're not super excited about. So there's a chapter in the book that deals with this idea of PECs and how does a manager talk to a team of people and try to get them motivated. And when you look at the literature, and I looked at it not just in sports, but I looked at it across the military and, and business. I looked sort of at all three of those different areas. There's a lot of common themes that come through. And there's basically three elements you need to give, to give an effective... Uh, pep talk. The first is just direction giving the actual nuts and bolts. You know the offensive scheme, the defensive scheme, the the business plan. You know how you're going to close sales today if you're in a sales environment. The actual strategy, nuts and bolts. The second one is empathy. The leader needs to say things that make it clear that he or she personally cares for the team. That tries to sort of build that connection so that the team actually wants to please and satisfy the leader. And empathy is the way you do that. And then the third one in the scenario you're talking about is what they call uh, meaning making, to try to take whatever the task is and make it seem more important or more meaningful or to draw some larger message. So imagine you were either in a call center or you were in a fast food outlet talking to people who are doing hourly wage jobs who, you know, there's may not be a lot of meaning in that. You could talk about, you know, the idea that know that this job is really hard, but that if we do it successful and we turn this branch into a profitable one. We'll have not only will our jobs be more secure. We'll be able to hire some of your friends. We'll you know have a bigger team here. You know potentially there'll be better wages. Um, so you try to draw a line between the sort of quotidian task you're asking them to do and some larger good thing that might happen as a result of it. Um, some strategy that managers can use if they're dealing with the kind of workforce you described. So how did you how did that how did you see that play out at Yelp for example? I mean like you know you're selling advertisements and you're not necessarily changing the world on in in the sense that you know you're saving someone's life or you're taking down some big challenge but yet there you you in your book you um highlight Yelp a few times and and talk about their process. So how did you see that unfold? So it was really interesting. So I did I went to Yelp on the last day of the business month so that this is the day when they were struggling to meet their quota. They On the last day of the month, they typically sell two to three times as much as they do in advertising as they normally do because you know they're just there's this heavy motivation to try to make your number. And I watched the person who's in charge of their entire sales force give this 20-minute pep talk to 
the sales force in the morning before they got on the phones to make their calls. And what was interesting about it, you know, it, it's, it seemed like she did a good job of it. You know, I didn't know I did this early in my reporting, so I didn't know a lot about the science yet. But one of the things I did was I had that speech transcribed, and I took a copy of it and I sent it off to the two most prominent researchers in this field of what they call motivational language theory. And they actually went through it almost like it was a Shakespeare poem and they annotated it and explicated it. And they kind of did an anatomy of it and they said, this is exactly what she's doing in this paragraph and it's exactly the right thing you're supposed to be doing. And she was hitting all three of those uh, areas. She was giving them very clear, specific direction about what she wanted them to do that day. She was being very empathetic and, and making it clear that she cared about them, that she understood that the task was hard. She was calling out individual people and saying, you know, if Chad can do this, you know, you guys all have the same kind of training he does. There's no reason all of you can't do what he's doing. And then the third thing, the meaning making element, she talked about how the fact that, you know, not only if they hit their individual numbers, would they be compensated better? But if the office was able to hit it, they, you know, that the office goals would be met, there were incentives for that in place, they'd be able to hire more people, they'd help the organization. You know, Yelp is a public company, so they, you know, they'd be helping the organization meet its financial goals. Um, she just tied, you know, she was trying to draw this connection between every time they dialed the phone and they were making, I think the average person there was like 75 calls a day. Every time they pick up the phone, she was drawing this connection towards helping larger Yelp be successful. And that was trying to make meaning around it. You know, I, I love that. And it's, it's interesting. And as you're talking about th- this month end kind of routine, it, it just begs the question, like, like, why aren't they able to perform that way week in and week out? And, and, and what in your research, like, did you ever explore that question with, with some of the people that you interviewed on the business end of things? I, I did. It's a really interesting question. I've never thought about that in that specific way, other than, you know, if you watch a race, you sort of expect, you know, running race, say, I mean, you sort of expect that they're going to pick up the pace in the last lap. Um, and uh, if you watch a football game and it's close, you know, the final three or four minutes are going to be played with a different level of intensity um, and a different sort of cadence. Um, so I think there's something natural about uh, in timed endeavors. Um, and things where you have this sort of curiosity um, that when you're trying to meet a goal and you get, you know, I've my oldest child is in college and you know she became very intimately aware of the of the phenomenon of the all nighter this semester um, <laughs> because she, you know, she she was diligently doing her work throughout the semester, but during final exams, you know, those dorms, those lights were on a little bit longer for everybody. I think it, it's sort of normal human nature to push a little bit harder when you're very close to the goal line. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. As I was reading your book, I was you know watching some football games and I'm watching these uh, 
these teams that you know are they have zero chance of of making the playoffs, let alone the Super Bowl, and they have pretty pretty much a zero chance of winning the team that they're playing in this particular instance. And I'm like, and yet all of these players are playing full out, you know, and it's an interesting thing because, you know, if you're, if you're applying that to business, I mean, like the juxtaposition there, it just intrigues me. And it's something that I've been thinking about ever since like reading your book, like, okay, why am I playing full out? I'm not going to win. I, I probably, I, the odds are I won't win. And I'm, even if I do win, I'm not going to the playoffs. And I'm not going to playoffs, so I'm not going to the Super Bowl. Yet I'm going to play all out anyway, and it's such an interesting thing. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I coach two of my children in basketball, so I've been around a lot of basketball over the years. And as you say that, there's one particular player that I've watched grow up. He's now uh, 17 years old or so, and he's the kind of player you're describing. You know, I've watched him in games where we're down by 25 points and he just still goes full tilt all the time and i've always thought it's you know i don't know if you can actually teach someone to do that because it is illogical um he's expending energy without a lot of upside to doing so he's probably increasing his chances of being injured which is the thing i always worried about um i think there's certain people by dint of their upbringing i think they see it as a point of personal pride um i think that uh they, you know, they may not be able to win the game, but they can close the margin. They can get it a little bit closer. They can make it a little bit more respectable. Um, I've certainly seen games, depending on the sport, where people are concerned about their own individual statistics. So even if the team is not going to win the game, you know, if they can score a couple more three between now and the end, it's going to, you know, help their season averages. Um, so I think people have various motivations for it. I do think some of it is, if it's not innate and inborn, it's at least. Uh, uh, sort of cultivated early on in a person. And I do think that, you know, the more cerebral somebody is, uh, the more inhibited they may be in that, in the sense that um, they might look at the situation and say, I'm going to cut back here because we're not going to win this game. Um, you know, that's, there's, you know, there's some logic to that, but it's not necessarily the guys you want to pick when you're drafting. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. And as you're, as you're talking, I'm thinking about your chapter on don't, don't win one for the Gipper. And and I'm thinking like, you know, these individual players, they're, they're playing a game for themselves. You know, they're playing their own championship game every day. They, and it's true in life. Every day, we all get the chance to show up and play like a champion, to quote the whole uh, Notre Dame uh, s- slogan, you know. But like, it, it, it's interesting. It's a, it's a conscious decision that needs to be made every day and sometimes at, at great peril to your, your well-being. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, it, it, part of it comes from having a performance culture where there's not only carrots ahead, there's sticks behind you in the sense that, you know, if you, if you say you're watching an NFL game, um, you know, there's certainly mo- NFL games that were on over the last couple of weeks that, you know, if you turn it on in the last quarter, you kind of know who's going to win the game. And you could kind of make an argument that the players who are going to be on the losing team could kind of take their foot off the gas a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is uh, those games are not only scrutinized very closely in real time, but the coaches are going to be watching them on videotapes all off season. And they're going to be make, making personnel decisions based on that. And obviously that's a highly, highly competitive kind of labor market. So part of the motivation there is that, yeah, maybe my team's going to lose this game, but if I dog it, 
and on this play, uh, the coach is going to see that. And he's probably going to obsess about it all during the offseason. And I could trade it or cut. Um, so part of it is you know, having a culture where there's some consequences to displaying lack of effort, even if the overall team goal is not going to be met. So, you know, we have our, our life experiences, we have our victories, we have our failures and all of our, our past experiences. How does that, when we examine those moments and we look at them closely and we reflect on the wins and the losses, how does, how does examining those close moments it, in, enhance our ability to perform when, when we're at our best? So one of the most interesting days I spent reporting the book, I went out to West Point to the U.S. Military Academy, and I was able to spend an entire day in uh, their sports psychology uh, facility and watched what their athletes did. You know, actually bring their athletes in one after the other for these kind of like therapy sessions. And a lot of what I was watching them do was how they would process these past wins and past losses. And the simple answer is they would really focus on the wins. And with the losses, they would try to extract a lesson if there was one, but then they would try to remove it from the mind and even their sort of mental hard drive as quickly as possible. And that's something I've actually incorporated in my own work. So this afternoon, I need to sit down to write an article. And one of the things I now do before I write an article is I'll take two or three minutes and go back to the best article I ever wrote and read it and just remind myself that's a win for me. And I'll remind myself of that moment when I was successful. And that's what I want to prime my mind with before I sit down to do my performance task again. Um, I work in an office where I have a couple of framed examples of my work on the walls. And it's a this is just a little writing office I keep. I never have anybody in here. So it's not like I'm showing them off. It's not about bragging. It's just about when I look up from my computer screen, I want to have almost like trophies uh, that didn't pass successes around just to sort of create an environment where I'm hyper aware of the fact that I have been successful in this field in the past. So I think when it comes to wins and losses, you want to really find a way to, to visibly and consciously focus on your wins. And you want to kind of try to put your losses out of your mind. How did West Point approach pulling the losses out of the mental hard drive, so to speak? So one specific anecdote on that was um, the day I was there, the Army lacrosse team had just lost to the Navy lacrosse team, which is their big arch rival game. And the psychologist actually sat down with the goalie and was saying, you know, I've watched this game on video. I've watched it a couple of times. There were four calls by the referee in the second that were just crazy calls that, you know, that fourth goal they scored, that was just a lucky shot. Some of it was actually saying, you know, this was a fluke. This was not really representative of your skills as a player or our team's capabilities as a squad. Um, let's just, you know, chalk it up to bad luck because a lot of it is what that was. And let's not think about it anymore. Let's not watch the videotape of it and let's move on. You know, one of the things you talk a lot about in the book and, and even in, in our conversation today is like rituals and, and all of the little things that people do as part of the process of getting them psyched up, even if they're unaware of it. And so I'd be curious to know, like, what, what is one of the most meaningless rituals that you discovered helps someone gain confidence uh, that they needed to perform at a peak level? Yeah, rituals are really sort of an interesting, interesting idea. I was surprised how much research there is 
that suggests that people who have rituals before they perform perform better. Um, and people aren't exactly sure why that is. They do have some theories, but there are functional rituals. So one of the things I'll do sometimes when I'm writing an article and I'm feeling a little bit anxious about it is I'll put on a set of noise-canceling headphones. And obviously, that serves a really good purpose because it makes it a quieter environment. It helps me concentrate. But it, there is also something that like, the squeezing of it in my head, it's sort of a cue to me. It's a signal like, okay, it's really time to get down to work now. So that's an example of a ritual that's not very crazy. It's pretty functional. Um, in the book, I describe a different set of rituals that Stephen Kerr does before he goes on his um, late night show. He, you know, some of his rituals are functional. You know, he puts a suit on. You know, he goes in the bathroom and gets ready. Um, but then when he comes out, he rings a hotel bell. He does a special handshake with every member of the cast. He chews on a certain brand of Bic pen and then puts the pen back in the box. Hmm. Um, he stares. At point in the wall for a, a couple of seconds. So he has all these um, things that don't really serve any purpose. They just make him feel better. If you think about LeBron James before a basketball game, he walks to the center of the court and he puts chalk on his hands to dry whatever moisture and to make the ball a little bit more tacky, which is functional. But then he takes a handful of the chalk and he elaborately throws it up in the air and lets it rain down on him. And the crowd takes pictures of this. This is part of his pregame ritual. So the first part of that is very functional. The second part of it is very symbolic and, and sort of more superstitious. Um, so I think you can sort of discriminate between these functional rituals, and these more superstitious ones. I love it. And that was Stephen Colbert, right? The, the example that you gave before? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Have you ever seen Pablo Sandoval before he uh, gets up to, hit, uh, to the plate, what he does? I've never been aware of what he does, no. So you, you got to go watch some videos of Pablo Sandoval, but he does this crazy thing uh, before he, he gets in the box, in the batter's box. Then he steps out of the batter's box and he scribbles something uh, in the ground in front of him. And then he gets back in the batter's box and he does it every single time the same way. And uh, it's very interesting. Um, you know, it, it's uh, one of the things I, I found that was kind of interesting too. And, and I don't, I can't remember if you actually wrote it in your book or if it's an article I read when I was, from the Harvard Business Review, there's a conversation you have with Jerry Seinfeld. Um, and, and he, at first, kind of poo-pooed the idea of getting psyched up. But then, it, then at the end of your conversation, admitted that he, in fact, does have a routine that he follows in order to prepare himself mentally. How, how do people like reconcile those two different things? Those, he has one opinion where he doesn't need to get psyched up. The audience does that for him. And yet he still has this routine that he needs to follow in order to feel comfortable. Yeah, Seinfeld was an, an example of, you know, earlier you asked me about uh, the most interesting people I've interviewed. And I said that celebrities are often really bad interviews. Um, Seinfeld was actually really a good interview. He was super thoughtful. He really engaged with every question I asked and thought about it in a way, you know, he was not giving canned responses of any kind. Um, and you're right, he did... He poo-pooed the idea of the idea of the that he needs some sort of a special motivation to go out and perform. What he said basically is when there's that many people out there and they've all paid money to see you, you don't need some artificial mechanism to get up. You're just, you know, you're naturally going to be up to do a good job for these for this group of people who've come together and paid and are excited about seeing you. But he then did go on to say that he does have a set of routines that he does. Um, his are very simple, especially when you compare it with Stephen. Colbert, he um, 
sits reading his notes for a few minutes. I think he always listens to Sinatra backstage. And then at exactly five minutes before the curtain, he has the stage manager come over and signal him. He puts his suit jacket on. And he says that when he puts his suit jacket on, that's his cue, his signal to his body that it's time to do our little trick here. And then he just paces in a certain pattern before he goes out on the stage. You know, now that you bring you kind of recount his story, it's almost like the Navy SEALs going to take down some big mission. You know, they they know they're ready for it. They're born for this. They they already know that they're the best and they're just ready to do it. And they probably all have like uh, a some sort of a ritual that they follow in terms of preparing their gear. For example, I had um, Jocko Willink on on the show a while back, and he has a routine where he lays out all of his gear um, after before and after every mission on this on a cot, and then he repacks his bag according to what it, what they're about to do. And so it's it's interesting that you don't necessarily need to get psyched up because there's this intrinsic motivation, as you just described again, but you still have this ritual that you go through to kind of trigger certain things to get you into a flow state. Yeah, and it, as you describe it, um, Phil Jackson, the basketball coach, in one of his books, he talks about how People stereotypically think of a coach giving a big pep talk before the championship game. And Jackson said, well, actually, no, you should sort of do the reverse. You know, before a championship game, people are going to be so excited that it's probably going to hurt their performance because they're too excited. And that's why he would use meditation as a way to actually try to calm them down a little bit before the biggest games. And it sounds like if you were in the locker rooms when when Jackson was the coach, he would be trying more to amp you up for those games that early in the season seem kind of meaningless, that are kind of a grind. You know, so it's almost it's almost counterintuitive. Mm. You have to kind of crank them up a little bit at a time when they might be too calm because it doesn't seem super important. And then when it's super important and they're going to be naturally very up, you might actually want to try to dial it down a little bit. Well, there's this this guy named Chris Sinog, who is a uh, a Navy SEAL, retired Navy SEAL. He was a Navy SEAL instructor and actually wrote the, the Navy SEAL school curriculum. And one of the key components to his ability and, and any shooter's ability to, to focus is actually meditation. So you're in this super, especially in the case of a Navy SEAL, potentially high stress environment. And and getting yourself amped up is going to is going to inhibit your ability to accurately execute your instrument. Yeah, that makes sense. I I have gotten feedback from people on the book who said, "Why isn't there a chapter on meditation?" And my feeling is that there's been so much written about meditation over the last few years that I didn't want to get into that. But yeah, uh, you're right that there for a certain kind of people and for certain kind of activities, and I would think sharpshooting or snipering or anything like that would probably fall under that heading. You can certainly see how that would be an effective technique to try to clear the mind and calm yourself down. Um, uh, so I can see why that would make sense. So you had the inter- the opportunity to interview both Jeff Bezos and the CEO of T-Mobile, John... Uh, how do you say his Ledger. last name? Ledger. His na- last name is Ledger, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'd, I'd be curious. I mean, they're two entirely different people. Both very, very successful, obviously. But I'd be curious to know what surprised you the most about the way the two people approached getting psyched up. So Bezos, I interviewed uh, for HBR. It was a few years ago now. 
Uh, and I asked, did ask one question about this, you know, how much do you try to focus on your rivals to try to get your employees pumped up? And Bezos's answer, which is one that many business people agree with, is that rivalry and focusing on competitors is not a great way to motivate people. He wants his employees to think about customers and sort of imaginative, innovative ideas for what we can do to make our customers' lives better. And he said people that have that kind of mentality tend to do better in an environment like Amazon, Leisure, whose company plays in the since cell phone, cell phone service market. He's the opposite. He's a former competitive athlete. Um, I think he told me directly, I like to win, but I really like to make other people lose. You know, he's one of these guys. He has three and a half million Twitter followers. He constantly tweets nasty things about AT&T and Verizon. He calls them dumb and dumber. Um, he spends a lot of his time and energy trashing his competitors and whipping his employees up into this competitive frenzy against these two evil companies they're up against. So I think, you know, that's so why are these two guys approaching this so differently? Well, clearly personality is part of it, but, but I think it also has to do with their market dynamics and their um, the economics of their two businesses. You know, Amazon is almost a one-of-a-kind kind of company now with the variety of things it does. Um, super innovative, a market leader and don't really need to look over their shoulders that closely based on the kinds of things they're doing. Think about the cell phone market. You know, everybody in America has a cell phone right now. The only way that T-Mobile is going to gain a customer is to steal it from somebody else. Um, it's not a super high growth market anymore. Um, so that's much more of a... a fisticuff kind of situation where you are battling it out against a couple of other big competitors. So it makes sense that the CEO of a company like that would be a little bit more focused on rivalry as a motivational tool. I love it. I, and I, I'm, I'm, I love the description of, of his office and his, his, uh, his outfits that he wears. I mean, he is like fully in the game with, with the, the brand that he's leading and, and exemplifying that in every way, shape, and form. Yeah, it was funny. He he wears these uh, custom-made magenta track suits. Um, he wears his hair really long. He's kind of got a mullet, I guess you would call it. <laughs> and uh, it, it's very flamboyant, outspoken kind of guy. But what was funny was, I I forget what year it was I was interviewed him. It was a couple of years ago. But it happened to be a couple of days after, I think it was his fifth anniversary at the company or third anniversary at the company. And he had tweeted out a picture of himself going for his job interview at the company when he's going to be the CEO there. And he had like a normal business guy haircut and he was a three-piece suit. It was really interesting to see this transformation that had occurred. He was really a buttoned up telecom guy until he got into this environment where he just kind of let loose and he decided that you know he's almost this like superhero character and he, he has this sort of whole persona going. Um, and it really works for him. You know, I, 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 as I said at the beginning of our conversation, the book was really fascinating and very insightful and applicable to people, whether they're athletes, whether they're business people, or getting ready to go tackle some, some big challenge like becoming a Navy SEAL. And I encourage people to get it. So with that in mind, where can people connect with you and your work online? Sure. The, so the book is called Psyched Up, and it's how the science of mental preparation can help you succeed. The book is on Amazon, and it's in bookstores everywhere. My Twitter is at Dan McGinn, D-A-N-M-C-G-I-N-N. And there is also a website for the book, which is www.psychedupthebook.com. Awesome. 
now, uh, and we will c- include all of those things in the show notes as well. And and now for the last three questions that I ask every single guest, and and these are kind of fun, uh, but they also have a serious tone to them. But take them any way you want. And the first is if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? I like to cook. There are times when I have some moderate ill. I'd be really interested to see what a cooking and food related superpower would be like. So I could imagine <laughs> sort of a cartoonish series based around that. So I'd like nice. to see that one. Nice. What are three lies that prevent us from performing at our full potential? The other is better than me. The situation's not fair. So it's rigged. Even if I do my best, I won't succeed. And uh, I'm just too tired. Hmm. Tell me more about that one. You know, you've, we've talked a lot about Navy SEALs, and you've had a few Navy SEALs on the on the show. We've seen what they do in training. Do you think that they're not tired? Yeah. Um, maybe it's not a lie, uh, but uh, it's not a, not necessarily a great excuse. Um, you know, we have become this society that is obsessed with our sleep patterns, and you know, who can get the best sheets and the best pillow and the best mattress. And I'm not saying that sleep is not important or that uh, being tired doesn't hurt your performance. I'm just saying that it's not a great excuse. You know, It's just one of those conditions we need to be able to overcome. I love it. And you know, the fact is that if the job needs to get done, it needs to get done. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm tired is not a lie. I think, we're, I think everybody's tired though. Aren't you tired? Aren't you a little tired today? Yeah. Um, I, just, I came sort home of a fact of life. business trip. So yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, I think that's just table, it's table stakes that we're all tired. Uh, and I think, you know, we just need to get over that and, uh, and find a way to perform regardless. You know, if we, anybody who's run a marathon or even a half marathon, um, you know, the last couple of miles, you're pretty tired. Uh, but you know, that's sort of the, the stakes of the game. Yeah, totally. This last question comes from uh, a book written by Clay Christensen, a Harvard guy. Uh, and that book is, is titled, How Will You Measure Your Life? And that is the question. So I've read that book and I enjoy it. I'm actually friendly with uh, Clay's co-author on that, Karen Dillon. And I think it's a fantastic book. Anybody who hasn't read it should read it. The other set of concepts around that idea is um, David Brooks has written a lot about what he calls having resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the things that go in your corporate or professional biography. You know, I have a BS in this and I went to this school and I've, you know, you mentioned some speaker, you know, top 100 speaker thing at the beginning of the show. Um, those are all resume virtue kind of things. Eulogy virtues are what you want people to remember you by once you're gone. And they probably don't have a whole lot to do with your career. They have a lot more to do with the kind of person you were, the relationships you built, the things you did for other people. Um, so I think uh, the older you get, the more natural it is to focus on your eulogy virtues. And when I think about measuring my life, uh, I definitely try to lean much more heavily in that direction. So if there's one virtue that you are, it's kind of counterintuitive to say that you're proud of a virtue that you have or promote, but if there's one that you could pick that you're a champion of, what would it be? Uh, I'd like to think that I'm a caring and uh, giving friend and parent. I love it. I love it. Daniel McKinn, this has been an incredible conversation. Very insightful. Again, go get the book. Links are in the show notes. And um, we, we just thank you for your time today and look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks. I really appreciate the conversation and the interest. 
Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact. Mm-hmm.